0: If you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to Psalm 139. We're beginning a brand new conversation, a brand new series of messages this week um, called The Image of God, and that picture and that particular phrasing of it, uh, we'll get into next week, so don't miss out on next week's message. Um, Got too much to talk about today, so... Just thought I would kind of tease you out with, if you, most of you know what that is a um, zoomed in version of, we'll talk about that picture and the inspiration behind that picture and what it really um, was, uh, what it really speaks to next time. But today we are beginning a brand new, super important conversation that will last for the next couple of weeks. Um, I I really think that God has been, and, and with his word, he's really been bringing us life and freedom and help over the first few months of this year. It's hard to believe that we're already um, a couple a week into May. Um, but uh, we a few months ago we did a series uh, really all about asking and answering why. Uh, you know regarding the major realities in our world uh, and we just concluded a study on prayer uh, that uh, really built off the promise and what it means to know Jesus and, and what Easter promised us. Uh, so we learned to surrender to to trust him and follow the Lord and his plans for our life so I believe that uh, with the addition of this new study uh, I really feel like um, in 2021 uh, God has just been helping us evaluate the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our faith. And uh, his goal is to strengthen and structure our lives around truth. And God's word is truth. And we come to church knowing that God's word is going to give us and impart truth to us. Uh, and, and by learning truth, the, the Bible teaches us to center ourselves and position ourselves under grace. That truth without grace is ineffective, but grace without truth is without direction. So we learn from both of those and we covet both of those from God's word. Uh, Also, this next conversation that we're going to be having together, that God's Word is going to be guiding us into and uh, uh, steering us through, um, I think it's super relevant for our current age and the world that we live in. Um, It speaks to um, our current culture. Um, and, and really what inspired this uh, months and months ago, really for the last couple of years, I've been wanting to do a conversation series around this topic and around uh, some scriptures that I feel like are really speaking to this. Um, but what, what I think that this message really will speak to and this topic will really speak to is that our culture has become so detached and distanced from God's design. Uh, The idea that God is our creator and that God as a creator had an intent behind his design. That uh, When I say God's design, his creative intent, I'm talking about his desire for us as people, his desire for humanity uh, within our genders and the roles that we are assigned and assume that God has a plan for us and God has a design that he wills us and leads us to walk in. Uh, Do you know that you were created You were created after God's design. Do you know that none of the roles that you take, exclusive to or pertaining to um, your particular design, none of those are insignificant, but rather they are possibilities for you to glorify God and fulfill your God-given purpose. And and, and that said, reality in so many ways takes our eyes off of this and the world that we live in is distancing us and detaching us from this. Most of us don't live in light of this. We live as if who we are and what we are is just incidental distinctions of happenstance. There's this disconnect between God's design of us and desire for us and how we appreciate the finer details of who we are, what we are and how we live. And honestly, I feel like we're worse for it. And most of us would agree that society has taken a few steps back in a lot of ways. The inspiration for this series is a a very familiar passage that I've asked you to open up to today for our initial read. Um, It's Psalm 139. We're going to be reading uh, from a a few different parts of this psalm, but I want to open up with a read from verse 13. Through 15, Most of you probably can quote this part of the psalm. Even if you didn't know where it was, you probably knew this was in the Bible. Maybe you've quoted it before. We've seen songs that uh, that allude to um, this particular psalm. Uh, but, but these verses, I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks, read them every single day. If you don't already think about this psalm every day, you should. Because it really can guide and direct you and kind of structure your life around God's design. And that's the goal of this series. Uh, I would encourage you to read it every day. If you can commit these to memory, that would be easy. Even more awesome so um, something to work on over the next couple of weeks Uh, but let's look at Psalm 139 this is David writing to literally singing to God verse 13 for you formed my inward parts you covered me in my mother's womb I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. So again, God had a plan for David's life. And this is not just for David's life, but for every one of you, for every one of us. You know, we often make a lot uh, about verse 13 in the first part of verse 14, and that is very powerful, um, how God created us and fearfully and wonderfully made us. But I think that equally as powerful and really empowering is the last part of verse 14 and particularly verse 15, where David says that my soul knows very well what you have done and the reason that you've created me. And he talks about how that who he is on the inside, it's not hidden from God, as if it's not something that God is, is ashamed of, but actually some, some, something, someone, to whom God loves and wants to use. So I want to focus on those two, those two ideas. David says, "My soul knows this very well. He has an understanding of God's design, an appreciation for it, and a delighting in it." That David is appreciating and learning to delight in who God has made him to be. As a man, as the man in his time that he was placed in, David is learning to or has learned to and he's understood that God had a particular design for him and he has learned to appreciate it and he has found his true delight in it. So keep that in mind, make a note of that if you will, because that's a very key pillar in this series going forward. Second thing is David says my frame is not hidden from you that who we are is part of God's plan and that even our struggles even your sins the things that we're ashamed of God is not ashamed of his children that God has a plan and he works to redeem you if there's something that needs to go but also he is intended on working through you and being glorified through you that every part of your being the things that are seen the things that are unseen the things that you're proud of the things that you're not proud of, God counts as a part of his plan, as potential for redemption and as purpose through which he can find glory. So those two things are so important for your everyday life, for you to live up to be the person that you've been called to be, created to be, to live into that role and to glorify God in it. These two things are so important Now, we'll come back to this passage again and again throughout this series and again later in this message even. But I want to speak a little more about our overall goal, building off the major points that we just drew from these verses. The goal of this conversation is really to shed light on how we often don't seem very delighted in and we don't take particular delight in. God's design. It's not even like we consult what God's design is. We just kind of bumble along and stumble along in the dark. It's as if we don't believe that our delight can be found in him and only in him. So I want to ask you this question, and you might, you might not have an answer. You might have an answer that is contrary to what the conclusion that I bring before you today. You may have a lot of different ideas. Now, that's okay, but I want to ask you a question that really will set the tone for our conversation. Do we believe that our delight— can only be found in God's design and desire. Now, some of you, that word only might be contentious. Some of you, you might believe that it can be found, but you don't know about it only being found. But for some of you, you might not know or not believe that it can be found in God's design and God's desire. You might have not been taught or maybe you aren't even sure if God can be trusted but do we believe, and I hope that the goal, the, the, the end game of this is that as Christians, we can say absolutely yes, we believe that our delight, our fulfillment can only be found in God's desire and God's design. I feel like when the church addresses these issues, it comes across as, as, as if we're making commandments that we should deny who we are, but, but I really feel like the better biblical approach is that we might discover who we really are and understand God's design of us and desire for us that we might find our true delight and true destiny. Again, this isn't about becoming less of who you are, but becoming more, not about living out a role, but stepping into your destiny as designed by your creator. In our world today, it seems that we take our cues from everyone but God. From everything but his word, when it comes to fulfilling our purpose as the person God created us to be and respecting the purpose for which he created somebody else, I feel like we don't take cues from God's word on these two important things. Uh, we listen to so many opinions, we follow so many leads, we expect certain things from others, and we often disrespect others when they fail to meet our own expectations. I honestly feel like so much of the confusion and the disarray in our society comes from the fact that we are, programmed, we, we are programmed to resist and doubt or question God's design. I feel like we as a people, even Christians, we are skeptical of a creator God who actually plays a role in the finer aspects of who we are and what we are and how we should live. Again, even Christians are a bit afraid to open the Bible and read about this because we've often heard it posited in a bad way. And we just choose to not even consult God about those things anymore. But the Bible actually has a lot to say about these particular subjects. Specifically, the Bible has a ton to say about things like the unique design of men and women. The uh, has a ton to say about our marriages, our relationships, sexuality, and much more. And God's word on these subjects is more nuanced than how it's often portrayed in our world, especially in our churches. For instance, contrary to what many would would suggest, there isn't a bullet point of gender roles in the Bible, but God definitely has a design and intent for both men and women unique from each other, but complementary to one another. Also, the Bible doesn't avoid the complicated, often uncomfortable conversations that, uh, about what godly relationships and marriages should look like. It addresses how what happens in our lives, apart from our spouses, has an unavoidable impact on our lives together, and vice versa. What happens in our lives together has an impact on our lives apart. And here's the thing. We often pick and choose what we want to hear from God about these delicate issues, We amen what he has to say about orientation, for instance, but we avoid what he says about what goes on in our acceptable relationships. We often think God just cares about appearances, but truly he cares about much more than that. We believe that men and women are different, but we often talk about this in ways that denigrate the other, not celebrates the other. We live in an age of extremes, in an age of hostility and confusion. The next generation of adults are growing up in a world where lines are blurred, When it comes to gender design, marital ideals, and so much more. And to avoid these tough conversations not only leaves them in the dark, but it causes us to remain detached and distanced from God's design and opens us up to be influenced by the world more than God, more than his word. And if we're being honest, this has been true for years. You see, we may know what's right and we may feel like we are right, but that's where it stops. We aren't delighting in God's design We're just towing the line. And church, here's really what what really is my my emphasis for this conversation, why I feel like we need to have it. I believe God wants his people to be passionate about what's right because it's the pathway to true delight in a life of fulfillment. I don't believe God wants us to be passionate about what's right for the sake of it being right. I believe it's better than that. And I believe we won't convince anyone that they're wrong by just saying we're right and you aren't. But I believe the way the church makes a difference in our world by being passionate about what's right and biblical and true, absolutely, but because it's a pathway, it's the pathway to true and only delight in a life of fulfillment. Now, if the church does not advocate for this, who will? We often stand for the truth, but we do it in ways that come across angry at those that are wrong. But, we shouldn't, but shouldn't we do so with broken hearts? Burdened that what God has given us, he can also give someone else. That we should not be angry, suggesting that we're more jealous than anything, that others are getting away with things that we couldn't. I believe it's time that the church begins seeking the Lord for wisdom on these areas that have divided our culture, that have divided our church. I also believe that we who hold on to God's word is truth, who believe what it says about creation, about Israel's history and redemptive role, about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, the church's launch through Peter and Paul. If we believe the Bible's teaching on all those things, if we believe the Bible teaches morality and ethics, then what do we do with literally pages of scripture that Give us insight on God's design and desire for us as people, as humans, as men, as women, as single, as married, as widowed, as divorced, as young and old. What do we do with those? We ought not treat something so core to our design as if it's not essential because it absolutely is. I truly believe the reason why we get so crossed up in these areas is because the church fails to teach them with grace and with truth. Society comes in and capitalizes within this vacuum and enslaves us with inferior plans and honestly insidious ideas. The big idea that we're gonna keep coming back to is that God's design is the key for our delight. God's design, our delight. Remember those two things, God's design and our delight. And if we're seeking God for wisdom and truth, grace and mercy to get this right and find our true delight, I believe we'll arrive there in the end. We're going to do so we're going to, we're going to do more than just seek God. We're going to take a look an old-fashioned approach. Uh, The Old Testament gives us a template that I think will get us where we need to be on these issues. There's an idea in the Old Testament, a phrase you see in the Old Testament that is always phrased, Seek God's face. This is more than just praying a prayer, but this is a posture that stems from an awareness that we've lost sight in touch with God and we've lost sight in in touch of who he intends us to be as his children. And how we are to live. Now we know this phrase from verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14. Where the Bible says to seek God's face and turn from wickedness. But I want us to understand what is behind this approach. What is really an anchor phrase and concept in the Bible. The idea here is that when we seek God's face. We are attempting to regain clarity and understanding of God. As our creator and as our designer. And us as made in his image. That's almost as important because if we just seek God as our creator, but not the last part, then we're not gonna get any answers. And it's gonna be murky if we do. This is of course tied to the fact that the Bible says we are made in God's image. And that idea of God's image and God's face, they're, they're, they're close, they're connected in their language, their connection, in their meaning. So we're seeking him so that we might walk in the identity he has given us, in the culture, in the gender, in the role he's graced us with and realize that what we've been fearfully and wonderfully made in a way that reflects the very image of God. Every one of us, not just some of us, not just half of us, but all of us. The idea that the image of God, that's always fascinated me. I used to think it just referred to looks. It just referred to our form, but the Bible teaches it's much deeper than that, much more spiritual and philosophical than that. When the Bible talks about us being made in the image of God, it's making a big statement about the the, the idea behind humanity, about the, the essence of humanity. The image of God is a definitive statement defining us, describing humanity's design and attributes. So if you've ever wondered, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It's more than just what we look like. It's more, much more than that. It's what we're made like. A definitive statement describing our design and our attributes. Think characteristics. In creation, God endowed us with certain characteristics and attributes that distinguish us from the rest of creation. So here on earth, God's image is exclusively shared with and expressed through human beings again this is deeper than just our bodies and their features and more about our soul and its essence so think about it on the broadest of planes humans possess the unique capacity for reason for will for expressing personality and developing personality all humans bear this image of god whether they have a relationship with him or not god has given this image to every one this is something that we we assert and we believe now even though humanity rebelled and sinned, we still bear his image. Not, someone that is not a believer still is in the image of God, still bears that, that, that value and that integrity of God's image, yet sin has tainted all of us and has scarred all of us. The Bible makes it very clear that when humanity failed, we lost a connection to God and thus the full and truly realized image of God was flawed. The scripture categorizes us in that aftermath as in the image of Adam, in the image of Adam. So we see this kind of dualism that comes into play. But here's the thing. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, between the fall and the next step, Adam didn't change outwardly. He didn't look differently, but he changed inwardly. And so did the human race that would come through him, that we were born a tier lower than intended now of course bringing this full circle God entered into the human race right God who is spirit who is beyond who is bigger than just our finite little bodies right God who made us and fashioned us entered into creation bringing it all full circle God became one of us after we fell from his image and was marred by sin God entered humanity even though humanity walked away from him in doing so, Jesus became the perfect human, the full declaration and presentation of God, making it possible for us to respond and repossess God's true image. Colossians 3 tells us this, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed and the knowledge after the image of its creator. So Jesus makes it possible for us to be restored to this true and full image of God. So to break this down for you, Jesus took on the outward image of Adam to restore us to the image of God. To bring humanity to where it was always meant to be. I hope that makes sense. So if you read the Bible, you basically see three different pillars. The image of God that we were created to bear and created in. The image of Adam that is because of sin tainted God's image. And then the image of Christ that restores us. To where we were meant to be, where we were able to be in the beginning. That's why in the New Testament you'll see this phrase over and over again in Christ, in Christ. It's literally a short version of in his image, in his kingdom. And this is where our whole being comes into the conversation. Jesus became a man, more importantly, a human being, so that we might be complete in God's image, not just in sphere and in soul, but in body and our outward identity as well God's intellectual sovereign design is not accidental and it's with it's not without intent God made us the gender we are with the body we have from our color to our looks for his glory I, I feel like the church needs to talk about this because we live in a world even as a part of the church that doesn't connect God's design with our delight even when we believe these things to be true, we don't walk in them as if they make our lives better and make our lives different. Again, it's more than just being right. It's about delighting in God's image and walking in true fulfillment. God wants that out of the church. We often struggle to see God's design, who we are, what we, where we are, the what and the how and We don't understand that that, that those are not stumbling blocks to our true identity. Neither are they merely labels and set dressing. But God made us. God made you for his glory. But I I think the questions that we've got to ask, do we even know who we are? Do we even understand who God has made us to be and how all that we are and all that, that, that defines us plays into that? I think honestly we don't. I think most of us, and maybe this will help you, help you get to where I've been. Most of us, we just try to find in the Bible how to not, like, not, to not allow our humanity to cause us to stumble. And it's true that most of us, we just know that we have all this stuff that makes us who we are. And it kind of gets in the way of pleasing God. And we feel like we've got to stop that, stop this, look away from that, get away from that. And we kind of become less of ourselves in the process of serving God. But God wants it to be different than that. That God wants you to realize that who you are is actually a stepping stone for His glory, not a stumbling block to honor Him. That your life has potential to honor God. But do you appreciate God's design as the pathway to our true delight, to your true delight? Now, I feel like today, of all days, is the perfect day to kickstart this conversation, believe it or not, because it is Mother's Day. I feel like the, that a way to really shatter our expectations and help us truly understand how God can be and wants to be experienced and expressed through our lives is to understand that there's an aspect of God. And maybe this will, get you, will surprise you, but I, I wanna really want to hit on this because this really, I think, expresses how every one of us, unique as we are, bears something about God and a gift of God that maybe we didn't realize. But there is an aspect of God, there is an attribute of God. That we witness in our moms an attribute of God that may not be exclusive to them, but is definitely better or best expressed through them and by them. I want you to notice something that gets zero attention in Scripture. But when the Bible says God created people, Genesis 1. So God created man in his image. Now that word man is, is literally plural, plural for humanity, so when it says he created him in his image, that's speaking of all humanity. And of course, the pronoun there, the male pronoun kind of takes, that encompasses both. But notice how that last part ends, the last part of that verse. Male and female, he created them. So both male and female, equally, uniquely, complementary, bear the image of God. Distinct from each other. That's, the, that's what I want to make you focus on right now. This is telling us that God created two, not just as a means of procreation, but so that there would be two unique, distinct, complementary reflections of and windows into God's image and God's face. That you don't get the full picture if you just look at one side of the coin. I think it's fitting that on Mother's Day we appreciate what often gets underscored. That, ladies, you have a unique capacity and opportunity to display the image of God. Now, we often separate God from Mother's Day because, of course, God became a man. Jesus taught us to call our God Father. Of course, this is part of the order of creation. But may it not undermine that God's image was manifested through both male and female. And may we appreciate the gift on display through the women in our lives, through all of our moms and all that desire to be moms. Now, men, especially pay attention here because this will help us understand that to bear God's image is much, much deeper than just our presentation and just our outward appearance. It has everything to do with our hearts. Now, what we're going to do is what we're going to discover is that thanks to moms and women, we have a lot clearer picture of what God is really like. So here's what I want to do. Before we leave, I would like for you to turn over. Keep your place there in Psalm 139, please. But turn over to, to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21, for just a few minutes, I want to read a woefully overlooked story that takes place at the end of David's reign. I'm going to bet that if you've read this before, you've never stopped and thought, wow, that's important. At the end of David's reign, there is a story that just jumped off the pages of the scripture years and years ago that only recently I figured out what to do with it. I'll be honest. And I'm so glad God began to show this to me. David, at the end of a decade plus, dive off of a cliff, not only as king, but as a person, as a man, as a father, as a husband. If you know the story, David has lost respect from the kingdom, mainly because he lost respect for the family. Not just his family, but those around him too. Now, we know that story. David throws away his marriage, destroys someone else's marriage to pursue an affair, which results in destroying his family. He loses two of his sons. He loses a daughter when it's all said and done. So at the end of his reign, David calls the nation to seek the face of God, confessing that they had lost sight of who God is and who they were called to be. So in doing so, and this is the whole purpose of this conversation today. In doing so, he discovers the face of God, the image of God in an unlikely place set in motion in an unexpected way. Essentially what happens is God leads David to make some old wrongs right. And in doing so, it sets the stage for David to behold God in a way that he was not prepared for. First Samuel, or 2 Samuel 21, verse number 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, the Lord, uh, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Hebrew there is he who sought the face of God. And the Lord answered is it is because of Saul in his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites so there's this old uh, you know grudge between Saul's family and an enemy of Israel and the enemy continues to, to, to antagonize Israel because this issue has not been resolved So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them now the, the Gibeonites were were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. And they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any territory of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. Now, I want you to know this. David is just trying to get this matter settled. David's trying to do something that brings the nation back in favor with him. He thinks by settling this little dispute between the Gibeonites and Israel, it'll make him more popular. He is doing this out of completely political reasons. And and he's leading the nation in prayer because he really is hoping that maybe, maybe God's going to show his face to him. But David has not walked with God in so many years that he really doubts it. So David is just trying to end his reign without without a black eye, without any more bad press. He's just trying to do something to appease the people because he wants to have his final days in office make him look a little bit better than his last few years have made him look. So these Gibeonites say, hey, can you give us Saul's sons that have just really been kind of rebelling and acting uh, apart from Israel's army, have been causing trouble for the Gibeonites, and David's just not got his hands in this because he's been otherwise busy. Now, Verse seven says, the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So David says, well, you know what? I really like Jonathan. He was my best friend. His son, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was disabled. David says, I don't really want to lose him or give him up, so I'm going to protect him and they won't really know it because he's kind of been in hiding anyway. So verse eight, and here's where the story really takes importance. The king took Armani and Mephibosheth, that's a different one, the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Melothite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest." And now the story shifts and strangely focuses in on one of Saul's former mistresses whose two sons were put to death in this moment. Look at verse 10. Now, Rizba, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. So, this was really an ancient form of crucifixion. They literally impaled these men on stakes, hanging them, not from what we would imagine. They impaled these men, and the idea was they're just going to let their bodies hang on this hillside. And they believed that God was withholding rain because of this you know, outstanding grudge between Israel and the Gibeonites. So they were going to just let these bodies rot on this hillside until God sent rain. But Rizpah, the mother of two of these criminals, is heartbroken at their death. See, the point of this, and here's the whole reason behind this, this whole story, I believe. The point of this is not some grand commentary on whether they should have or shouldn't have been put to death. But here we have this mother out in the heat of the day on the hillside, literally shooing away the birds. And trying to protect her sons who have been killed, by the way. Protect their bodies from being mauled by the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. She is spending her days while the kingdom has let these young men rot on these stakes. She is spending her days mourning their death and protecting their dead bodies from being humiliated in aftermath. You know what the point of this story is? Behold This mother's endless love for her two sons. Even though they may have been criminals, even though they maybe upheld the atrocities of their father and continued in rebellion against David and God for years, even though they had done all these things wrong and had been put to death, they were still Rizpah's children and that would never change to her. Despite everything, they were still her sons and she would never stop loving them. Again, there's no subtext of the story. There's no reason for the story to be in the scriptures if not for this. This is included so that we might marvel at how this mother unconditionally loved her children. It also speaks to how innate the love was and it's meant to be contrasted with how cold David had been toward his own children. How indifferent he was to the loss he had suffered in recent years. This isn't to say that he lacked the capacity to love. It's just to show us, or him rather, that he could learn something from Rizpah. He saw in Rizpah the love that God had shown him for years in spite of him being undeserving. His little response to this isn't all that important. But to tell you how the story ends, he removes them sooner than intended. Rather than letting the birds destroy their corpses, he gives them a proper burial. And if you know your history, that Saul and his family had been kind of their, their bones, their bodies had been buried in a place of disgrace. And David is so moved by this that they literally go and excavate the body of Saul and Jonathan and the family of Saul, and they bring all their bodies together and they give them a royal burial. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but for David, it was cathartic. It was a way to let go of old grudges towards Saul, a time of healing for the nation, all because of the redemptive power and impact of this mother's love. And down in verse 14, the scripture says at the end of this, that God heeded the prayer of the land and rain finally fell. You see, this might not have impacted anyone else, but it deeply impacted David because David salt God's face, and he indeed caught a window right into it through Rizpah's endless love. David would go on to expound on God's love in ways that he hadn't previously in some of his later Psalms that we see him have a new perspective. I want you to notice something back in Psalm 139, if you'll turn back there. David, with this impression on his heart from Rizpah, look up at verse 7. And listen to how David writes about God's persistence in pursuit of David. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Now, what kind of statement is David making here? Is it theological? Not so much about eternity, This isn't saying that we can't walk away from God, but it's saying that even if we do, God will never stop loving us. We can't comprehend that, but I imagine our moms today can. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers nor things present, things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Where did David learn this that Paul would go on to write about? From observing Saul's late mistress trying to protect her dying or dead son's bodies from rotting as they hang. He witnessed the passionate, persistent, and permanent love of God. Down in verse 13, notice David says, from my mother's womb. This is the only mention of David's mom in the scriptures. We don't read anything about David's mom and his story. We know about his dad. We know the house that he came from. We know his great-great-grandmother was Ruth. But we don't know anything about David's mom. She, you know, she gets a g- generic mention here or there. But I have to think David is calling back to what he learned from Rizpah, that there is a gift of God's love that is most on display and passed through a mother's love. God used Rizba in this moment to show David, the king, something so powerful. He thought the nation had lost touch with God because it had lost respect for him. But maybe, just maybe, it had lost touch with God because it never truly respected the work God wanted to display through an office more sacred than king, through the moms, through family, but especially through the moms and the land. Now, here's why I think this is a bigger deal than maybe you might would have the hunch for. Uh, you might would suggest it would be there is a theme in both volumes of Samuel first Samuel second Samuel that really presses this this message now Samuel was originally written by Samuel but he died uh, at the end of the first book and his disciple Nathan most likely picked up the pen and finished the story off that was the priest uh, unto David and and, and throughout the, the years after David but I want you to notice this parallel First Samuel begins with a story about Hannah. We know her story. She prayed for a child, and when she finally got her baby Samuel, she dedicated him to God. First Samuel begins with a story about Hannah, and then 2 Samuel ends with a story about Rizpah. The beginning shows how God used Hannah to counter the corruption of the priesthood. Through her desire to be a mother and love her son, the nation found hope and the f- found help. The ending shows how God used risk to counter the corruption of the kingdom through her determination as a mother and love for her sons. The nation finds hope and health once more. Of course, we know that David impressed on his son Solomon what he learned from this experience. The book of Proverbs is most notable as Solomon's wisdom that he passed down from his father, that his his father David passed down to him. But the very last chapter of Proverbs opens up differently. Rather than saying that he has been given instruction passed from his father, he says, this has been given to me by my mother. Perhaps because David made known to Solomon that you will not only witness God in me, but you will also, maybe more importantly, see him in your mom. Solomon uses a pseudonym in that last proverb for reasons unknown, but half of that proverb is him sharing wisdom his mother gave him. But the last part is a tribute. Written to honor his mom. David, or Solomon never did such with his dad, but he did that for his mom. At the end of that proverb, he says, Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. This is a quote from David. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. A fitting redemption for the relationship that was built on infidelity and murder. That God restored that and showed David a greater appreciation than he had before now women not exclusively to mothers but of course including our moms have a gift that is unrivaled when it comes to their gift of grace their passion to nurture and care their rationale and earnestness what I hope we can take away from today is that God our creator has a grand design for us all and we'll get to the rest of us in all different categories of life don't worry perhaps we've lost sight of this like so many generations before us did May we begin to appreciate how God can be in his own display through both men and women and may this message remind us that God wants to work through us all. He wants to restore us to his image and make himself known through our lives in maybe ways that you didn't expect through people that you didn't expect and we will only find our true delight if we fulfill fully understand and follow God's design and his desire for us and I'll say this to all of our moms And all of our ladies, those who hurt today because of lost loved ones, especially those who struggle today, you're so very special, you're chosen, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. To my wife, Lindsay, to my mom, my sisters, my grandmother, my in-laws, and all who bear those same wreaths of brilliance, thank you for showing me God's love in a way that I would not have experienced otherwise. I, I think I speak on behalf of every son and husband, even more so every human today, We're all better because of you. We love you and forever are indebted to you. Thank you for bearing the love of God so graciously. Maybe this reminds you that your capacity to show the world is greater than you maybe thought. May we learn today and thank God for this gift. He's given us through our moms and our mother figures, most of all because that gift is a picture of his love His love that sent Jesus to die for us, unlike those sons of Saul, Jesus unjustly, undeservingly was put in our place and put on our cross. Yet, undeserving and unjustly as it was, he went to die anyways because God's love for us was outstanding. In that moment, God is like Rizpah, sheltering us from what we deserve. Do you see that? Rizpah couldn't get her two sons off of those crosses that day. But God came down and took us off of them and put his own son in our place. We deserved to die like that, but God loved us anyway and Jesus took our place. If you've ever felt love that strong before, just know that it's a direct reflection of God's endless love. It's meant to bring you to a place of adoration and salvation through Christ. Whether your mother's pointed you to Jesus or not, that's what it was meant for. That's where it comes from from his very image, from his very design. Apart from him, there is no source of hope, there is no love, but in him there is and there always will be. And most of us, I'll say all of us, are indebted to the reflection of God's love that we witness to and we experience through our moms or those that were like mothers to us. And just know that you may have never would have experienced God's love if not for them. But since you have, and since you do know what that love is like, may we honor them and honor all those around us by making the decision to put Christ first and to love him with all of our hearts because that is what that gift was meant to drive us to so that we might walk in his image and fulfill our very purpose for which we were created. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome reminder. (laughs) of your grace, of your nature, of your love. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that we have a place in your kingdom. You designed us and you destined us for something more than this world will lead us to naturally. God, thank you for helping us to see that your image, both men and women, bear your image and bear unique gifts and expressions of your image in ways that we all to appreciate. And Lord, as we go on this journey to see you and all people of all kinds, I pray that you might would help us give appreciation to our moms today for the love of God they showed us and shared with us and showered us with, that we might would pay it forward to our world and give that same love to those around us today, to our kids, to our friends, our family, even our enemies. Lord, thank you for this example of Rizba who no one else would ever remember, yet David makes a big deal about this because he saw in her the love that he had forgotten about. He saw God's face and there in Rizpa's broken heart, he saw it. He saw the face, the image, the heart of God on display. And as she was broken for her sons, you pour out your love to us that we might have a relationship with you. God, we're thankful for this promise and for this invitation and may we make good use of it today. Find comfort in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.